0: bit of a weird interview because obviously you know so much about me and the stuff i've told you said here that i don't think i've ever told you
1: Hello and welcome to day 14 of a Sideways Life Podmas. Or is it? I mean, well, it is. Uh, but as we mentioned yesterday, this is a Takeover, uh, the Truth, Lies, and Workplace Culture podcast is here this is an episode from this week which is live on that feed we're bringing it to you on a sideways life and as we said yesterday this is a deep dive into al his story his ups his downs and how he got to where he is today so i won't talk anymore this is an hour interview as it is um, but as we mentioned we would love your feedback uh, but for now here is a sideways life podmas stroke street lives and workplace culture podcast. Enjoy. One of the best things about being part of the HubSpot podcast network, the audio destination for business professionals, is meeting other amazing creators just like Sonia Thompson from Inclusion and Marketing Podcast. Inclusion and marketing digs deep into principles like belonging, customer experience, and diversity to equip you to embrace and authentically practice inclusive marketing. Yeah,
0: so the episode I've just recently listened to is called Create Inclusive Buyer Personas. Now, if you're in marketing or sales, you know what a buyer persona is, and it's difficult at the best of times. What Sonia's episode is going to do is help you to create an inclusive buyer persona that's going to help you create an inclusive brand.
1: Listen to Inclusion and Marketing wherever you get your podcast. <laughs> hello and welcome back to the truth lies and workplace culture podcast where we help business leaders business owners and everybody else who's interested untangle this somewhat complex world of people and culture my name is leanne i'm a business psychologist
0: and my name is al and i'm a business owner
1: and welcome back hello so today is a little bit different we um we've been around for a little bit a little bit of a few episodes now Um, we've been on the HubSpot podcast network for about six weeks and we've realized that we haven't really taken the time to introduce ourselves so we thought we would do that this week um in in a two-part Episode series. It will both come out this week, um, and today we are learning all about my wonderful co-host Al Elliott and his very interesting and roller coaster experience as a business owner and entrepreneur. Al, welcome to the podcast.
0: Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's a delight to be here. I've been I've been dreaming of this moment for a long time, Leanne. It's just you've never asked me.
1: Well, we're very busy. <laughs> so i think we should just dive straight in okay and get to know get to know al Elliot. so to steal a question and if you're a regular podcast listener you'll know exactly where this question is from what do i need to understand about young al to better understand the man that sits in front of us today
0: oh that's a good question oh i'm stealing that for the next time i do the interviews. So. <laughs> Hmm. I think I noticed that a lot of the decisions I made tend to be around, um, sort of trying to be popular or trying to be cool because as a kid, I was never popular. I was never cool. Um, I was the biggest nerd ever up until about the age of sort of like 1920 still I'm a huge nerd but I was like an uber nerd um and so but so I was never particularly like in, in the comprehensive school which is um I, I think for Americans that's public school I think for the UK it's public is different so for just like your general bog standard school um and, and I say it because I went to one um so with that I was never particularly public cuz I was never good at sports um I wasn't like um I looked weird in my teens I still look weird now um, um, I wish I could have grown a beard in my teens. Um, and also, um, so I was never really popular there. And then when I went to a grammar school for my A levels, what my parents wanted me to do, because my little brother went to grammar school all the way through, then I came from the comprehensive and I wasn't particularly intelligent. And so I only scraped by to get in there. So I wasn't particularly popular there either. Um, so when I left university, I think I went into pub management. So I had a few pub. Um, pub jobs, uh, that's bars. So um, I had a few few jobs in bars and then in, and then went into like a, a, a bar management and then went into the actual got a job as a pub manager. And I think probably that's a lot of that is to do with the fact that I wanted to be the person who sort of everyone to, to, to put the party together, I suppose. So my first pub job was in Manchester in a busy student bar. We used to get sort of two or 3,000 people a night in there. And my job was to make sure that everything was running right and everything. And so I suppose that was the beginning of it, and I really enjoyed the fact that people, you know, thought I was important. Uh, that people thought that, you know, that essentially I looked down and I go, if if I hadn't done all the bits and pieces today to make this night happen, then they wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't be happening. So that's, I suppose, my my working career. When I left that and I started building businesses, I think it's a similar kind of thing. My very first business was a um, a beer delivery company. Um, and I had maybe sort of 20 or 30 staff in there and it was a similar sort of thing. I felt like, you know, I was paying or I was paying people to be around me, but I felt that it was, I was creating an environment where people wanted to be and probably wanted to be where I could be part of. Does that make sense?
1: It does. And, and before we kind of dive into that period of your life, you, you said there that you were, you were not good looking, you're not particularly intelligent, um, you weren't popular. Where does this kind of self-deprecation come from?
0: I honestly don't think it is. I think it's just practical. Um, I My brother is um, a professor, um, very, very clever. Um, and so obviously naturally with being two boys in the family, you kind of, you are pitted against other, uh, one another to a certain extent or compared, I suppose, is more likely. And then I remember some of my earliest memories were where, um, there was a, a girl called Eleanor who was in my class. Um, and, um, my mom kept going, right, what's, what, what did Eleanor get in this test? And what did you get in this test? And it's like, well, why didn't you get what Eleanor got? And, um, so there was a lot of this sort of, um, competition to be intelligent, um, which I wasn't able to, 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 well, I wasn't able to, to win as much as my brother did. Um, now I think I've got intelligence in other, certainly other things. Academically, no, but in terms of other stuff, definitely, I feel like I'm very good at picking up, seeing patterns or seeing ideas, which is again, takes me onto the entrepreneurship. So I, I don't think it's self-deprecating. I honestly think now I'm in my forties, I look back and I'm like, yeah, this is just practical. That's just how it was. It, perhaps at the time I felt terrible, but now I don't. I'm just like, okay, that was just the fact.
1: What does intelligence mean to you?
0: I'm not sure necessarily that you can define intelligence using just one sort of criteria. Because intelligence in warfare, for example, is very different to intelligence in a university, which is very different to intelligence in if you're leading a massive team, which is very different to intelligence if you're starting a new business. You know, so I don't think you can say someone is not you can say I've got a universal universal measure of intelligence, even though I'm sure psychologists do, and I'm pretty sure that's IQ. <laughs> but but I would say I would I would argue that intelligence probably within your domain, do you have intelligence? Do you know things that other people don't? Um, so if we if we talk about intelligence in terms of like secret service and spy stuff and all that, the intel they talk about in James Bond, well, that's the intelligence about a particular domain, isn't it? About a partic- about t- particular people. So I think maybe intelligence is often very domain specific and someone who would appear very intelligent as a person university professor, for example, I'm trying to take the most extreme example, would would appear really stupid to someone who managed a team of 10,000 people or who started a business or Elon Musk, for example. Two very different intelligences, I think.
1: You mentioned that you were often compared to <clears throat> your brother and it wasn't kind of a, a game you could win. <laughs> um, do you think that played a role in in you going into business?
0: Being an entrepreneur, yeah, maybe. I, I honestly, I hadn't really thought about it like that before. Yeah, in my family, that wasn't a game I could I could win. Um, whereas in my family, there was no one really who was an entrepreneur. So even if I was a shit one, <laughs> I'd still be the best entrepreneur in the family. Um, so yeah, I never really thought about it like that. But yes, yeah, so p- potentially, yeah.
1: Are you competitive?
0: I don't think I am particularly competitive. Um, we have a monthly quiz with, um, <laughs> with with my family and with your family, and I am always last in it. Like they they get an average of like eight points and I get three. So and that doesn't bother me at all. What does get me excited is when I see an opportunity in something, and I think not many people have have seen this opportunity, and even fewer people are actually acting on it. So that's where I would become competitive. But not because I have to win like Taipei personality, just more because the excitement of being able to bring something to life that hasn't existed before is incredible. So I suppose I'm competing against time rather than people in that I like to be, I like to create things that either haven't existed before or have existed but aren't great Um, And so that's why I got into coding as well, because it's maybe about sort of, I started programming when I was a kid in basic, Um, but I started in PHP about 15 years ago and I was rubbish for about eight years of it. And then I started getting better and better and better. And what really excites me about that is that you can sit down and within a day, you can have produced something that other people can access and use that's never existed before. Or you can see something that exists and you go, that's not very good. I can improve that. And I don't have to go and find a huge tech team to do it because I can create a proof of concept in a couple of days. And that's what I like. So I suppose I see coding very much like Lego or like woodwork where... If you want, if you can imagine something existing, like I remember when I was uh, when I was living with my brother in Bradford, we built a cabin bed, <laughs> a bunk bed. Um, and so we just sat there and we're like, okay, let's design it. Let's, uh, let's go and cut the wood. And, and so within three or four days, a space that was unusable in a tiny bedroom suddenly became this place with a desk underneath it. And then, um, and it sounds like children here, <laughs> and then a bed above it. And we created that and we, we created from nothing. So I suppose I'm not competitive with other people But I am competitive with myself in that I want to produce something that I'm proud of before, (laughs) I suppose, before I get bored of it and move on to something else. So that's probably my time constraint. Probably what I'm competing against is (laughs) if you were to graph my interest over time, then I'm working so hard to stay in the first third of of that quadrant of that graph before it starts to plateau and then dip and then it just never gets built.
1: Is that a pattern that that is quite familiar to you? Then,
0: one hundred percent. The I think I'm not sure. There's many things that I've finished. I've started lots of things. And what what is funny is that is that I, I meet a lot of people who who say they've got great ideas and they never do anything about them. And I always think it's ridiculous. You could have a website up by this afternoon. You go and get like a landing page a website up this afternoon. You'd be running ads by tomorrow. You could have started this, yet. <laughs> people who look at me when I started something and then haven't finished it probably think exactly the same thing. Like you're a flipping idiot. Why have you, why have you got this far and got this much momentum and then just given up? So it's definitely something that I'm really bad at. I get excited about opportunities, excited about proof of concept. And then my interest almost falls off a cliff um, because I'm like, Oh, let's go and build something new.
1: So let's take it back to your your first business that first opportunity that that you saw. Um what was the build up to that? What did kind of the 12 months before you started your first business look like?
0: I think the build up to starting the first business was probably around excitement and frustration that I'd never really like I'd never really fallen into a job that I enjoyed. Um they all just seemed to be just work for work's sake. Um and so i just wanted to do something different and so i i looked at all kinds of different things and then this idea of doing beer delivery after hours was 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 like the most appealing and the most exciting to me and also because i'd been in the license trade already i knew a little bit about about licensees and licenses and all that kind of stuff in the licensing law
1: so is it just a case that you were kind of bored managing a, a bar and wanting to to do something different in the same industry
0: yeah, well, I mean, I, I got sacked from managing the bar uh, because money was going missing, and I couldn't tell them where it had gone. So I, so I ended up getting sacked from that, which obviously was the end of my career in um, in pub management. Because who else is going to who else is going to going to um, uh, going to employ a bar manager who at twenty one, well at twenty one, had been had taken a bar from the twenty seventh worst in the in the area to the first in terms of sales, but then six months later got sacked for. Um, for, for money going missing, for gross misconduct.
1: So how did it feel to go from, because that's a huge amount of, of success. And just so we kind of have a timeline, this was in the, what, what year was this?
0: This was 1999 to 2000, and what late
1: 2000s. And you took it from number 27 to number one. Yeah. And then you got sacked.
0: Because the money was going missing.
1: Which you
0: had nothing to do with? No. And I still, to this day, don't, don't know where he was going. Whether the, I mean, the, I know this, there was a weird thing around the post office in the UK, around about the same time, where he was over. Po- postmasters were getting, um, were getting sacked because the, the tills were saying it should have this much, and it was a computer error. So whether it was something like that, or it was just as simple as someone was just taking money, I don't know, but I don't know the answer to that. So I went to do a sales job, a door-to-door sales job. And then I did a phone sales job, uh, both of which taught me loads, but I hated. And so my main thing was just, I just hate, just basically getting up, going to work, coming home, watching TV, going to bed, getting up, going to work, coming home, watching TV, going to bed. It was just, this seemed this horrible cycle of just, is this it?
1: Hmm. So give me some beer as your first business. Mm. um so tell us tell us about the idea behind gimme some Beer.
0: so it was born from a a night where there was a load of us sitting around having a few drinks we'd been to the offload no been to the pub come back and there was a, there was some like some went to someone's house maybe like some sherry and some advocar or something in the in the uh, in the cupboard ran out of that it was about 11 o'clock um and everyone was like, let's have another beer. Like, we've got no more beer. We've got nothing else to drink. So we all sort of like disappeared off home. And I was like, wouldn't it be great if I was the man who was able to phone a friend and go, bring us some beers. And so that's where it sort of came from, was that surely this, we can do something. So I looked more into this. And of course, licensing law meant that I couldn't sell alcohol um, or no one could sell alcohol after 10pm until 10am the next morning. However, um, I started looking more into it and realized that that actually a sale, according to British law, is only consummated when the money is taken. And this this all started when, and this is going to make sense in a second, when I went to a hotel, they took my card, they swiped it, and I said, what have you done that for? So, right, okay, well, what's happened is it's reserved £30 for us. So if you use anything from the minibar, for example, then the money's reserved for us, but not taken yet. So at the end of it, we'll just say, okay, yeah, you took two cokes and a... Um, Jack Daniels. Therefore, that'll be eight quid. And then they'll take the money and then it, the rest of it's released. And that's what gave me the idea for giving some beer. I was like, well, we can deliver the alcohol at three o'clock in the morning because delivering it is fine. Deliver it at three o'clock in the morning, take a swipe of their card, and then put the sale through at 10am the next morning, which meant that the sale was consummated during permitted times or permitted hours, which got us around the licensing law. Well, to start off with. Um, so that's how it kind of got born, how it started.
1: And it was successful quite quickly. Was it within a, a few months you were named in the 42 under 42?
0: Is that right? <laughs> it was actually, yeah. It was, we were kind of, because I was only like, what was it? 2002. So I would have been 29, I think. Um, and uh, no, sorry, 25. Um, and it all sort of started quickly. I got, a, I got a loan from HSBC Bank for what seemed like a huge amount of money at the time, but it wasn't. I um, got a loan from HSBC Bank. I, I rented a, a little sort of shed. Um, I built a big walk-in fridge in there. Um, and then um when I when I, <laughs> I started a the business, they're like, Great, we'll start the business. And then no, the phone didn't ring at all. And then the second night it rang once and someone wanted a packet of cigarettes, which we were then selling for about the same as they were in the garage. So I made a, I made about a pound delivery fee on that. And I realized that something had to happen. So I came along with this idea of finding students to go up and down the the queues. Um, the lines on outside nightclubs uh, between the hours of so like nine and 11 and basically sign people up for the after hours service saying, look, if you give me a name and email address, then when you ring up, we can deliver you beer when you come out the nightclub or the pub or whatever. Um, and that worked phenomenally well. We went from literally, I think, I, I think my first week I took five pounds, six weeks later, we were doing about six grand a week. Um, And it just, it just blew up just because of that. And that's where I think I started to get the, get the attention of the paper. Uh, I was on local radio um, and then nominated for this rather embarrassing 42 entrepreneurs under 42, um, which we're going to find out in a minute wasn't, wasn't a great nomination.
1: But how did it feel to get, I mean, you talked before about in your, your younger years, not, not being popular, not kind of being the person that's getting the accolades. How did it feel to suddenly be the center of that type of attention?
0: Well, I mean, obviously it was quite cool. It was cool. And, and being like, not being British about it. Yes, it was amazing. It was amazing to feel I was building something. It was amazing when people, drivers and staff used to come to my, the, the, the little shed that I'd rented was like a three bedroom sort of old converted garage. And one of them was the cold room. One of them was my bedroom and one of them was the office because I slept there. Um, and it was quite cool to like, 10 o'clock at night, start to, people start to drift in, staff would drift into the, to my office and they'd sit down and start taking phone calls. And then, you know, three o'clock in the morning, it'd be like busy and there'd be phones ringing, people shouting and, you know, someone going in the beers and stuff. So it did feel like it was like, finally I was at the big, I was at the center of something quite cool. And people were there because they wanted to, they were with me on this journey.
1: What was the, what was the philosophy behind your business in terms of your, your people? What did your culture look like?
0: I'd written, <laughs> at the time, I'd read a lot of Tom Peters, which I think he's kind of fallen out of fashion now a little bit. But we're back in the day of 2002, and my dad was big into, into Tom Peters. Uh, and so I was reading loads of stuff about that. And so I was trying to implement as much of that as possible. So, for example, one of the things we used to do um, was we have a job swap. So a driver would take calls for one night and then the the, the person who took calls would go, either go out with the driver or if they're insured, do their own deliveries. And then we had a job called the board monkey, where the idea was every single order that came out went on the board. Um, and and so that was, that sort of moved around every single every single um, night was was a different person on the board. So my whole idea was to create this environment where people had different experiences. Everyone understood everyone else's job. Um, and- they just had a really good time at work. And I suppose that probably does come back to the time when I was working, either doing my teaching practice when I was trained to be a teacher before I moved into all this. And then when I did my sales job, I'm just thinking, this is just a, this is boring. <laughs> I don't want, so I never wanted to create a culture or a workplace that was boring that people went, I, don't, I really don't want to go there.
1: And its peak, how, how, what did Give Me Some Bill look like in terms of number of staff, in terms of revenue?
0: I think we had at its peak we had thirty staff. We were doing about twenty thousand pounds a week um, turnover, um, about five pounds profit. <laughs> it didn't it wasn't a very profitable thing, uh, but it was it was really cool, and there was such a great environment there, and people just you know like when we finished work it sounds ridiculous to say finish work at six in the morning we should work at six in the morning and we'd all sit around have a couple of beers and watch MTV or something, um, because that no one wants to go home they just felt like I'd had a really good time and they were just it was exciting and things were new and there was problems to solve that they all had the opportunity to solve themselves before
1: we, we get on that you mentioned before that um about the licensing laws and sounds very much like a loophole there <laughs> um was there any repercussions to that was there any follow-up in in terms of, <laughs> of that somewhat i don't know it seems a bit cheeky to me <laughs>
0: Yes, there was definitely uh, repercussions. The uh, the local, in the UK, there's like a member of the police who's in charge of licensing um, to allow you to sell alcohol because in the UK, you need a license to sell alcohol. And so his job was to ensure how the people were fit to hold a license. Uh, so I got my first license, of course, it's just an off license, it was a normal license. And then when he discovered what I was doing, he pulled me back to court, which almost never happens, pulled me back to court and he's like, I want, you know, I want to clarify what you're doing. You seem to be contravening the licensing laws. And at that point, that's when I was doing my sale and completion, swipey of credit card kind of thing. And so the magistrates, I mean, the magistrates, magistrates kind of liked when I went there. I went three or four times. I kind of liked it because I think it was just different to how their normal day would go of dealing with someone who'd stolen a car or fallen out with their wife or something. Um, so he basically said, my problem is not that he's, I can understand he's not taking money, but still he's picking his stock outside of permitted hours um and i was like and at the time I was like what the hell does that mean so i went away and did some research um and it turns out that yes it's fine to deliver alcohol but only if it's been pre-ordered because in theory you can only go into the stock room during permitted hours and of course we weren't <laughs> people were ringing up at three o'clock in the morning saying can i have four cans of Stella? and we walk into the stock room grab the four pack can and go and deliver it to them now even though we weren't taking the money we were still contravening the contravening the uk licensing laws because we were actually going and getting the stock during outside of permitted hours. So I had an idea <laughs> and I thought if we ever get, if the police ever raid us and they want to see, and we've got like a can, a, two bags, four cans of Stella going out to Leanne Elliott in Manchester, then they'd go, how has, has she ordered this? And at, the, at that point we're like, uh, yeah, just a few minutes ago. Show me when she ordered it. Oh, just a few minutes ago. Right. Well, you've broken the law. So I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if we created an order of every permutation of everything that someone could order from us and for every single customer we've got. So I spent about four weeks writing this computer program that would essentially create an order, every possible combination of orders of products we sold for every possible customer we had. We honestly had about 50 binders, each one with probably about five to 500 pages in there, and each one in tiny print. So if anyone ever stopped us and said, where's the order? We can go, yeah, we printed it out. Look, let me go and get my file, look under G for Gopsil, which is Leanne's maiden name, find it and go, look, Leanne's ordered four cans of Stella. Now, the fact is Leanne had also ordered eight cans of Stella. She'd ordered 12 cans of Stella. She'd ordered a bottle of wine. She ordered two bottles of wine. So there was maybe a thousand different orders for Leanne. But the fact is that legally she had ordered it beforehand, so that's how we kind of got round that. That he didn't like that at all, so he took me back to the uh, to, to the magistrates for I think this is the fourth time we went back there, and uh, and the magistrates went, look, <laughs> fair enough, you've given it a good go, we've seen you four times, you tried every possible way to get round this, and so no, we're taking your license away from you, and they took away my my, my liquor license, my off license. So
1: what what happened then? What was what was left is give me some beer if you had no license
0: well nothing because suddenly suddenly what could we do people ring up and go, can i have four cans of stella and you go well legally we're allowed to sell you wholesale which means you have to buy 24 cans of stella and they would be like well we don't want 24 cans of stella can you not just bring us four I go no because we've not got a license so we can't sell less than wholesale and that was the licensing law back then before it changed was that you could sell it wholesale anytime you want no license required but you couldn't sell it Sort of not a wholesale in, in points. So <laughs> we came up with an idea. In Costco, there was a very, very cheap case of something called Lambrini, which is perry, which is basically pear cider. Um, it's horrible stuff. But they came in packs of six 1.5 liter bottles. And they were about the time about six quid. And so what we what we discovered, or I discovered, was that if I sold four cans of Stella, and I also made them buy this case of Lambrini, that was qualified as wholesale prices. And therefore, we didn't need a license for it. So it it was quite difficult to to, to convince someone who'd been drinking all night, ringing up who wants four cans of Stella, they also have to buy this Lambrini. But... And we probably lost 50% of our business, but the other 50% were kind of like, okay, I see what you mean. So essentially this is like a delivery fee. And I was like, yeah, basically, yeah. So you get your four cans, you get these Lambrini. And I said, and also I tell you what, we'll bring next time you order, we'll bring you another set of Lambrini. But if you've got the original one back, we'll take that back and give you the new one. So you never have to pay for it. You only pay for it once. Kind of like, I suppose, a Costco membership fee. Again, really convoluted, allowed us to get around it for a while, but ultimately wasn't the solution.
1: So what what happened? How long was there between kind of this final change in, in how you're operating before you realized that the business was unsustainable?
0: Probably only a few months. Um, the licensing law was, was starting to change. It was allowing local shops to stay open until three, four in the morning, selling alcohol at half the price we were selling at. Um, so I think I think maybe about six months after that, the business closed. Um, we were selling out of the back of a car. I remember I, I got mugged. Well, well, not mugged, but I, I got um, an order to this dodgy part of Leeds. I went there um, and, and they kicked the crap out of me, took my, took my money, my phone, my car. Um, and at that point I was a bit like, you know what? this just isn't worth it so so unfortunately i stopped and i went and got another job um but i still wasn't enough um that still wasn't enough to sort of pay all my debts because i borrowed like 103 grand at this point
1: why'd you borrowed that that amount of
0: money for? Well, the bank kept giving me more and more money because they were like, this is an exciting business. It was in the dot-com era. So all I did when I wanted more money is I just, I went there and I went, I've got a new business plan. I put dot-com at the end of Gimme Some Beer, which was my company name. GimmeSomeBeer.com. They were like, oh, we're investing in dot-com companies now. So yes, here's another 50,000, you know, and they increased my overdraft to to 40,000 or something. Then I had a van lease, which was like 30,000. So and credit cards and all this kind of stuff. So if anyone's ever run a business and it's not going well, you'll know what the credit card dance is, where you go and apply for a new credit card, then that gets maxed out. And then you go and convert it to a loan, which Egg used to do all the time. Then you'd max out your credit card again. And you just, were just getting deeper and deeper and deeper into the shit, Um, which it all sort of came to a head when I realized that, you know, I owed this 103 grand. I was earning about three grand a, a month from my sales job, Commission only sales job and I don't think I even covered the repayments on everything. So what happened then? Well, I went bankrupt. (laughs) It was the person because everything was personally guaranteed. So it's the only thing I could do. Well, it wasn't the only thing I could do. I could, I suppose, have gone. But I I couldn't really, because I got so much stress, so much stress at with all I was basically working so hard. My, I was behind on my mortgage that I lit on the place in in Bradford, which I bought. I was behind on the mortgage on my investment property in Manchester that I'd bought. Um, And I was also renting somewhere that we were behind on rent there and electricity and all that kind of stuff. And I was just thinking, what's the point in even getting up in the morning and going to work? Because I need, I need like 500 quid today just to keep my head above, but just to pay the debts, let alone any kind of, um, any food or travel or petrol or anything like that. You know, I remember I used to go and raid my my copper jar to go and put petrol in the uh, in my car. And that's the most ridiculous thing is when you you go in and you put eight pound and forty pence worth of petrol in your car because that's all you've got in coins, and you're driving so slowly trying to make sure it's going to last you all day. So the the most sensible thing was to look at bankruptcy, and which is what I did in two thousand and seven.
1: How did it feel at that time to? be living in that that kind of world. Like you say, you you know, you're, you're coppering up to, to pay for petrol. Knowing that just a few months previous to that, you had a business that was doing 20 grand a week, 30 staff, a great work environment, a great culture, um, exciting problems to solve and, and you know, the drama of being an entrepreneur. And it does sound like a TV, some kind of like <laughs> short series of, of kind of Al versus a licensing guy in Leeds. <laughs> How did it feel being in that, in that darker place and looking back at what, what you'd had and what you'd lost?
0: I think it was awful because like you've said, there you'd lost it. And, and at that point I was maybe 28, 27, I'd be, uh, 2007. So I'd be 30. I think I'd be 30. Um, and I was like, what the f- fuck, I've just ruined the last three years of my life. Not only am I starting, not starting at zero at 30, I'm starting at minus 103 grand. So what the hell am I going to do with the rest of my life? Um, And it was just quite a frightening situation. I think actually thinking about it, I think I went bankrupt a little before that because um, I, I think I was 30 when I started my next business. But yeah, it was just And it was also a bit of embarrassment that, you know, I said before about the 42 under 42, and I'm like, oh God, you know, what happens if someone finds out that it's it's not worked? And it's like, of course, no one's, you know, there are 42 people who've been given that award. You know, no one's really going to go follow each one of them and go, how are you getting on? Um, So it was that, but it was just, there was a lot of shame, I think. And obviously my parents were pretty upset about that because, you know, Mm -hmm. there's that that stigma attached to being bankrupt. Um, But I kept thinking, you know what? If, it's, if you've gone bankrupt, it's shown that you've at least done something. It hasn't worked, but you've done something and you've tried something. And I kept borrowing a lot from the American philosophy of just bankruptcy's not, bankruptcy's not like the final. bankruptcy. kind of like the beginning. I was reading a lot of things, people saying, that, or books, people saying that uh, they only ever invest in entrepreneurs who've been bankrupt at least once because it's shown that they've gone, gone for the moon and it's not worked. Um, so I was taking a little bit of solace in that, but it wasn't, it wasn't a great time.
1: What was the the darkest moment during that time?
0: In terms of shame, the worst moment was when my neighbour rang me up from Bradford and the house had been repossessed. So I'm guessing they'd put some kind of notice on the door being repossessed. My neighbour, who I'd gone on really well with, and she rang me up and went, what's happened? Your house has been repossessed? What's happened? And I had to pretend it was like a banking error or something, but she knew and I knew. So that wasn't great. Um, And of course, there was lots of times which were dark because... I didn't really see, I did see a way out of it. Um, a few months later, but at the time I was like, I'm gonna have to get another job. And I'm, I'm, as I said, I'm worse than where I was five years ago.
1: You mentioned there that you were kind of looking at the American philosophy and, and starting to, to look at kind of the positives behind bankruptcy. Was that, where did that drive come from to try and shift that mindset? Was that you or was that somebody else's influence?
0: I suppose, I suppose it was me because my parents' influence was very much, and I don't blame them at all for this, but my parents' influence was very much, okay, right, you gave it a go. It didn't work. Let's go and get a job. You know, you can go and get a job in Aldi or Weatherspoons or something like that. Um, so there's, you know, you have a, you have another opportunity to become a teacher, for example, and that was the, the last thing I wanted to do. So I suppose that it was almost like a negative motivation, that I didn't want to go back to a normal working life that made me start to reframe how I looked at things. I think about the same time I might've done a Tony Robbins thing, you know, when you run across the coals and I think that might've been a bit like, wow, that was sort of, as cheesy as, as it can be. And of course, you know, you have your own opinions about it, but I followed him for quite a bit and like bought his tapes and his CDs and all this kind of stuff. And that did help because it just started to reframe really that what had happened yesterday doesn't necessarily dictate what's going to happen tomorrow. And so I think maybe I'm wrong, but I think, I think I got a lot of motive, a lot of self-motivation to do this. And not much external motivation at that point,
1: I don't think. Al, tell me, when was the last time you heard someone say it's almost too easy when talking about a piece of tech? Never. Not me, for sure. Because tech usually isn't easy. Tech is usually too complicated, too busy, and too frustrating and
0: it should just be easy, right? The HubSpot CRM platform is ridiculously easy to learn, to use, and we love it here at Oblong HQ. We use it ourselves. That's because it's a handcrafted, sophisticated system designed for the way that teams actually work, not just a bunch of cobbled-together tools that don't really speak to each other. We've all been there. So with a suite of powerful tools that seamlessly connects your teams and customizable hubs that you can add or subtract as you grow, it's not almost too easy to use, it's easy to use.
1: Well, that sounds nice. Learn how HubSpot can help your business grow better at HubSpot.com. What was it about Mm -hmm. a normal life, a normal job, to use your word, normal career that that was so off-putting for you, especially after you'd been through so much and the heartbreak of building and and losing a business? What was so bad about that more traditional career path?
0: I honestly don't know. I'm... (sighs) I've never wanted to be the BMW in the drive of a four hundred thousand pound detached house in an estate. That's never really
1: interesting. Is that true? You'd never kind of wanted those things?
0: I don't think so. I just felt that was mediocrity. And like I felt that the you know, the opposite of of being on, you know, on your ass like I was after gone bankruptcy is mediocrity, not riches. It's like people seemed... I just felt that those were the two opposites, whereas it was a totally different direction to go in, to build something, to... I don't know whether it was, was I wanted the recognition for building something or I just wanted the excitement of being able to wake up and go, I'm excited about what I'm going to do today, rather than I'm going to go to the same job and see the same people in the same car and then come home and watch the same TV programmes or eat the same food and go to the same bed.
1: So clearly you were driven to to go again, build another business. Um, I mean, tell us, that. how do you go from bankruptcy for more than £100,000 to setting up business number two.
0: Well, it was funny because if, if, if anyone started, if you're listening and you've started your own business and you know there's, there's usually a business is born from scratching your own itch, from solving a pain that you've got. And um, the pain I had then was I had two houses being repossessed. I was late on my rent. Um, I had all these people fo- chasing me. There was a particular water bill that wasn't included in my bankruptcy by mistake. And so I was a CCJ. And so I realized that I knew probably more about debt, debt management, mortgage than the average person. In fact, more than probably like seventy or eighty percent of the people in the UK. Because I've been through it, and I also had this. I had empathy as well. So it was at that point that um, I started talking to my the guy who used to manage my business for me in the beer business. He was only a kid um, at the time. I think he was like. 18 or something when it came to work for me um and um, and i started talking to him and he'd been he gone to university and he was doing his, uni- his degree and i just said you know do you fancy doing something a bit different because i've seen this way in which you can buy houses for less than what they're worth rent it back to the people um and you can and you can help people to who have being repossessed to stay in their property and if you do it ethically most people aren't doing it ethically if we did it ethically not only would we make some good money on it We'd build a property portfolio, um, but also we'd be helping people in, you know, in, in the same way. And so I think that's where my next business was born, was purely that I had the knowledge and the experience of going through massive amounts of debt, bankruptcy, repossession, and then Chris, my business partner, who was only 21 at the time, but he was mortgage, he could hold mortgages. So we could kind of bridge that gap of saying, if you are getting repossessed, then let us buy your house, rent it back to you for 99 years. And I know anyone who's a landlord knows that's not right, but we'll talk about that in a second. Rent it back to you forever um, and save your save your family home. And so that's kind of like how where the next business was born.
1: What do you mean ninety-nine years isn't right?
0: Well technically, um, an AST and a short short old tenancy in England and Wales is only allowed you're only allowed to give them twelve months. What we did was we give we if we said we buy your house, what we'll do is we'll give you um some kind of undertaking that means that we will renew that tenancy every year for up to 99 years, as long as you keep your, as long as you pay your rent, um, you're never late, uh, you don't contravene the licensing, uh, the um, the tenancy agreement, or whatever, whatever. And that was really just a marketing thing. It was just to say because everyone else, that was the biggest, the biggest issue with other companies in the sector was that they were that they'd buy people's houses, they'd rent them for six months, and they'd buy them for like 30, 40 percent, the cheapest they could buy buy 30, 40% below what it's worth. They'd buy them for, rent it to the family for six months, then serve them what's called a section 21 notice, an eviction notice, and then sell the house for what it's worth and realize that gain. Um, And that was going on because it was totally unlicensed back then. That was going on a lot. And so I thought, well, what? That's that's their big... When we started getting into this, we found that's the biggest objection to anyone doing this. We said, well, how do we get over that? Well, simply we'll give them a 99-year tenancy. And that's that. so that kind of won us. We were beating... You know, we went to see customers who'd gone to see these massive companies advertising on TV, and these customers are choosing us because, purely because of that 99-year tendency, which was really not. I mean, if they were late with their rent, that entire undertaking went. So we were safe. But it just felt like such a, felt like such an advantage in the market at the time.
1: Where did this confidence come from to launch yourself into a, a new area of business that you didn't have any former experience and beyond your your own personal experience.
0: the imp- impet- Impetuosity of youth, perhaps. I don't know. I was about 30 at the time. It was about when we met, I think, wasn't it? So maybe I was 29, 30. And I just felt like, why not? Why not? It's not necessarily confidence. I've, I almost felt like it's a necessity, like I had to do something about this and not necessarily from a moral point of view. But just because if I didn't attempt to to build something based on this idea, then what would I have? I would have this mediocre job. I'd be 30 and a salesperson and nothing against salesperson, salespeople at all. I love sales and some of the most wealthy people I know are salespeople, but I was just selling crap. (laughs) I was selling advertising space over the phone. So I'd be 30 and then soon enough I'd be 35. Then I'd be 40, still doing the same job, same dull things and just the same dull life. So it's not a confidence I felt. I felt it was a necessity that I had to try this and I had to do this.
1: So what, what were the kind of the steps behind that in terms of actually setting up that business? What were the things that you had to, I mean, how did you get the trust of a 21-year-old to have multiple mortgages? How did you, how did you even navigate getting mortgages? How does it all work?
0: Well, without going into the ins and outs, uh, the trust was there because um, Chris, um, who's still my business partner in that business, um, what, 15 years on, maybe a bit longer, um, he was, um he, he'd worked for me in Gibson Beer and he'd seen that I literally, I was sleeping there. I was, he was going home at five in the morning or four in the morning, then coming back in about 11. And in that time I'd had two hours sleep. Then I'd gone to the cash and carry, bought more stuff. And then I was doing the accounts and I was typing stuff up and whatever. So he'd seen that I'd worked hard. And in fact, he's the only person who ever made money from that business because I paid him well. In fact, all the staff I paid well, and that's probably what made me bankrupt in the first place. I should have been paying people per delivery like Uber does now. And I was just paying people an hourly rate where they were busy for like two hours and then they were quiet for two hours and they're busy for two hours and they're quiet for two hours because I wanted to make sure that they, that it was fair and right for them to come into work. So, so I think Chris had seen that. He'd seen that I, I really genuinely wanted to help people. And also I think that he was a bit bored at university. He'd, he'd had this exciting sort of like 18 months gap year where we were building, give me some beer. He came with me to the 42 under 42. We were like brothers and we got on really well. And he went to university and I think he felt a bit deflated that, oh, oh. I mean, maybe you're asking me, it'll be totally opposite. But I just said to him, look, just come down, hold some mortgages. This is how it's going to work. All you have to do is hold the mortgages, etc., etc." And it turns out actually that, that property is Chris's passion. Like now he's a big developer. He's done all kinds of bits and pieces, which he probably wouldn't have done had we not started that business together. Really, there was, there was no real trust required because Chris trusted me. And then in terms of actually starting it, back then it was Google ads. So I just went and re- bought all the Google ad books I could. I can't remember if Amazon was around then. I can't remember. I might have gone to the bookshop I read them. Um, and then started implementing them and started running ads. And then, I, and then we ran an ad in the, uh, news Um, and I remember it distinctly. We, we ran it as an advertorial, so basically editorial that we'd paid for, but I wrote it. So I read, all the articles around money in the in the, Manchester Evening News and then tried to rewrite it in the same style so it didn't look like an advert. And it worked so well. So we basically, we, we went out on the Tuesday and then, and then the Wednesday we had like eight, 10, 12 people who'd inquired about it. And so we had these appointments and we went to see them. And I think from that we bought eight houses. Each, each of those houses probably was At the time, we they gave us about 20 grand worth of equity. Um, and over time, those eight houses have probably given us um, just from that one advert, which was fifteen hundred quid, which was the last fifteen hundred pound we had, I had to convince Chris to get an overdraft. I think so. So the so the cheque would clear, um, and after that we were off to the races because we we had a proven model.
1: So this was kind of two thousand seven, two thousand eight time, the beginning of the global financial crisis. Repossession was high, so I guess business was booming. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, what was the, what was the gross trajectory of your, your business?
0: Oh, well, I think we, we went from literally starting, um, let's just say arbitrarily May, uh, 2006. Um, we started then I was obviously bankrupt to that point. Um, and we bought our first house in, I think say September, 2006. And then it was 18 months and we bought 38, 39 houses. Um, in that period, I mean, right, right. Yeah. 30, something like that. 37, 38 houses over 18 months. Um, Like at some point we were buying two or three houses a week um, and it just grew and grew and grew. And of course, the more we got good at the process, the more we we could go to the court with the repossessee, if that's a word. And we knew what to say to make the judge give them a 56 day extension so that we could buy the house. Um, So the growth was phenomenal, but then it just finished as soon as it started. Like it, it was finished like the same speed that it started because like you said the global financial crisis people were you're getting mortgages for for nothing Like people will give you a mortgage if you just if you had a pen to sign the documents didn't didn't even check your income and then if anyone's seen um the big short then about 2008 lenders started going to the wall. And then we got, well, I think it was the, 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 point, the day we knew it had finished was when we were due to complete the next day on a property for this poor couple who had had a really shit time. Um, I think there'd been a death in the family or something like that. They were about to get repossessed. We were buying it two days before the repossession date the, um, and the lender pulled their funds and we just couldn't get another mortgage. So we were like, well, this is it. So we've let these people down and we know that we can't buy any more houses for a while because we can't get any more mortgages.
1: It's interesting that you tell that story and say that you, you let these people down rather than reflect on your disappointment of not being able to buy your 39th property. Mm.
0: Yeah, I think that's definitely a, a theme is that with everything we do, like with Oblong, we're doing together. Um, my primary, this sounds like a sales, like an advert for Oblong, is not, but my primary thing is how can you help someone to get what they want? Because there's I think it's Jim Rohn who says that in order to get what you want, help others get what they want. So I've always sort of like tried to think that way. And now I think naturally I do, of just like taking responsibility for the soul for the for a problem, for a solution to a problem. And then even if that solution doesn't involve you earning any money, still ensuring that the person can has a solution to that problem. Like for example, when we were buying the houses, we probably had about a thousand applications for for help. I would guess about half of those, we told them, we gave them some free advice, says, all you have to do is this, 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 it won't cost you any money, we won't make any money from it, but that's what you need to do and you'll solve your problem. So... It was probably half of the people we spoke to, we never made any money from, but I took a personal, such a, I used to stay up to like three o'clock in the morning, answering these emails, helping people out, sending them links to resources and telling them the strategies they should be doing because I just felt like I was helping someone. And it was just great because you made a difference to that person's life. a Huge difference.
1: Where do those values come from?
0: So I suppose a lot of it's come from my parents that you should help people if you can. But also there's, I've always been a little bit fatalistic, whereas you don't know who you're gonna help. You know, you stop at the side of a road with someone who's um, someone whose car's broken down, and then you maybe sit with them in the, in the rain, and they sit in your car, and you ring the AA and all that kind of stuff. And then that person turns out to be um, to be the next prime minister, for example. And even if they never see you again, the fact is that had they had you not stopped that night, then perhaps someone would have come down and smashed into them and killed them, and then they never would have been the next prime minister, for example. So I kind of think this weird fatalistic sort of idea that. And maybe it's not fatalistic, maybe I'm thinking something different, but that you never know what people are going to do and what they're going to do with their lives. So if you can help someone in a, in a small way, then you may never, never know it, but their son, daughter, or whatever goes on in their life, it could have such an amazing effect on the world. And it's sort of like a reverse butterfly sort of idea. You know, the, the idea of the butterfly flapping its wings in Japan and then earthquake in Australia sort of like the opposite of that and I think that that's always something that I know you and I Leanne we, we we look at things and go how can we help someone not how can we get something out of them and that's made a massive difference I think
1: so you built the the property portfolio up um so a business that is no longer well tell us about that business so as you said that um all the mortgages started to be poor. Lenders were, were changing their policies. Um, what happened with the, the properties? What happened with you and Chris then?
0: So we stopped buying stuff in about 2007. Uh, we just held our, held our properties. Uh, didn't sell anything for about five years, I don't think. And just basically rented out. Um, And we were quite lucky in that the global financial crisis meant that interest rates dropped. So um, at one point, I think they were 0.25% and our mortgages were 0.5 below the base. So in theory, they should have been paying us. But actually there were some mortgages, either they were zero, I can't remember if there was zero a month, or they were just rather than 300 when they started off with, they were like 50 quid. So we got, we had some opportunity with that. Um, And then over time, I've started to lose a bit of interest in the property side of it. I'm still interested in the investment side of it, but not the property side of it, whereas Chris's interest has just massively grown. He's doing his own developments. He's absolutely killing it at the moment um, around Manchester and Salford. Um, and he's that's what he does for a living. He does property. So we are at the point now where I think we are looking to sort of slightly change things around so that I become more of an investor um, rather than actually a property manager, because management is not my strength strength is definitely more starting things and getting, you know, solving problems. We want different things. I mean, he's, he's got a young family. We haven't, um, you know, we want to travel. We want to, we, we love moving around Europe and travel. He doesn't, he wants to stay where he is. So definitely things have, I think things, things have changed massively in our lives. We're still very grateful that our wealth has come from these properties and will continue to come from the properties. But, I like everything it changes and your, and your perceptions and your, what's important to your life changes. And therefore I think your business needs to change at that point as well.
1: So how did that change for you? What does, um, how did you kind of go from properties into what you're doing now?
0: One thing that I, I got really good at was marketing and copywriting because that's how I wrote the Google ads. This was my very first like foray into marketing really was Google ads. And so I wrote the ads. I wrote the landing page copy. Um, <clears throat> I even, This is for the properties. You I'm sorry, this is for the properties. Yes. So we're going back to 2005, six, seven, And that's what I was writing. Then I was used to do follow-up, um, letters. There was a guy called Chris Cardell. I don't know if any of you are old enough to remember Chris Cardell, but he used to do all these webinars or these, these, actually there were tele-seminars back then. You'd pick up the phone and ring in onto this like, teleconference. conference um, And he used to teach you marketing stuff. And in the end, he'd try and sell you something, of course. Um, but, um, but I learned loads of stuff from him. So I copied him. And so I started to get really good at marketing. And then when we couldn't buy any more properties and I was like, well, what do I do? I didn't want to go and get a job. Even though we both applied for jobs, uh, we've just looked at each other like, we're not doing this. And so I went off and started becoming a marketing consultant. In fact, I started a marketing company, which then morphed into a web design company. So maybe a year ago after doing all that, so Leanne was doing stuff, you know, business psychologist, self-employed, I was doing marketing, self-employed, and we we're just having a drink one night. We're like, why don't we put, you know, why don't we work together? And I do the marketing and you do the psychologizing.
1: As you look back then on, on, on your career, I guess I have a few questions. What do you see as your biggest success?
0: marrying you of course
1: <laughs> in your career i think
0: it's probably just helping i don't know it sounds really cheesy this but the fact that you know there was 39 families there were that we that we saved from bankruptcy i say from um, repossession uh, there was another two or three hundred people who we saved by helping them to remortgage or helping them to um to restructure their their debts so they weren't in so much financial strife um, and I just remember getting like, sometimes getting emails from people who I'd helped months ago, just going back and saying, thank you so much. I've done, I've did everything you told me to do. Now I can afford things. I'm on this repayment plan. I have spoke to my mortgage company, et cetera, et cetera. And that was just filled me with joy that we were just, we could help all these people. So I would say uh, probably the biggest success is the property business, but not, re- I mean, financially, yes, it's successful for both of us and for Chris and his family, But really, it's the biggest success was that we made such a big difference to so many people's lives who were just desperate and despondent and didn't know where to turn. And that was pretty incredible.
1: What is the biggest lesson you've learned of the last 20 years?
0: Ooh, maybe it's just as simple as always do what you say you're going to do. I think that's probably it because in almost all the, all the con all the situations I can think of, when we haven't, or when I, or someone I'm working with hasn't done what they said they were going to do, nothing good has ever happened. Um, a few times, like we were buying houses and, um, we did some more calculations, realized where it went got it wrong, and went back to this, this woman and said, "I am so sorry, we we can't give you the price. We 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 originally we made a miscalculation. It can only be this price." Oh my god! You, you, you'd think that we'd broken in, stolen her cat, and set fire to it in the garden because she was so angry with us. And I think that is just like it's just because if you get the reputation of doing what you say you are going to do, then people are going to trust you. But more importantly, you never have to look at someone across the room and go, oh shit. I said, I'd do that thing for them. I never did. Uh, I can't speak to Bob. Uh, Quick, talk to me or we'll have to go somewhere else. You can hold your head up high and walk through life knowing that every single thing you promised, you kept those promises on. Of course I've not. I've mocked that up lots of times, but each time I feel awful about doing it. So I think that's probably the biggest lesson. It's not a very exciting
1: one though. What are your, your hopes for your future in business?
0: It's funny, you know, I'm 45 now. I don't have the same hopes, dreams that I had when I was 25. Um, I, do, we, because you and I have a very, I mean, this is a bit of a weird interview because obviously you know so much about me. Um, but although I'm, the stuff I've told you, said here that I don't think I've ever told you, um, but Our life is very different now. So for me, it's not about building a business, selling it. I'm not interested and nor have I got the energy to work like I did when I was 25 to work, to build something amazing. So my goals for the business is more of the same. Talk to people, show them a solution or help, or you show them a solution because it's technical, show them a solution. And and even if that solution isn't our solution, show them the right
1: solution do you consider yourself to be successful
0: yeah i think i do now because i don't measure it against anything really i don't care how much money we've got in the bank as long as there's enough for when i go and get some money out there's enough money there you know I, i don't i don't get excited about having x number of thousands or tens of thousands in savings accounts or investments i don't really care So yeah, I think I'm successful because I don't care about success. I think that's probably what it is. I no longer care about success the way I used to. And so therefore I think I'm successful.
1: What advice would you give to 15-year-old Al who was in school feeling awkward, not feeling clever in comparison to his siblings, not feeling particularly popular? What advice would you give him?
0: nothing. I'd leave him the fuck alone. I honestly would. I would not, I would not say, or I would not change anything. I would not say anything because you don't know. Like it could be that if I went back there, I could tell him that actually, um, nerds are going to be really popular or really like, you know, they're going to be quite cool at some point. Um, you know, in the, in the mid 2000s, 2010, um, I could tell him that it doesn't matter because this is going to happen in your life, but Anything I would say, if I disturbed the tiniest little bit, I don't want to get all back to the future on you, but if I disturbed the tiniest little bit, then I wouldn't be here today with a podcast or two podcasts that I'm very proud of, um, a lovely wife who I work really well with, a business where we genuinely get to help people and we get to sit in, you know, in a a different country most of the time doing different things. So I would not give him any advice. I'd just let him carry on knowing that he's going to be miserable for a little bit, but then ultimately he's going to be happy.
1: <laughs>
0: join Samaritans. Oh, join Samaritans! <laughs> yes, that's a great bit of advice. That's how Leanne and I met. We we're both in Samaritans, both volunteers. That made a massive difference. In fact, that's probably the biggest thing that made the difference to business and my life today. Is the Samaritans just because not only did I meet my lovely wife, but I learned so much about listening, about just putting your life, your own life into context. You know, oh, you you went overdrawn today. Well, here's someone whose mum died. And they just can't see a way to carry on. You know, it's just a great way to contextualize what's actually going on in your life. So you're absolutely right. Join Samaritans. That's in the UK. Join Samaritans. It is one of the best things you can do for yourself.
1: I mean, on that, what advice would you give to, I guess, any kids out there who might be you know, don't want to go to university or have decided not to perhaps uh, have an idea to start their own business. Is there any advice you'd give, give to them?
0: Yeah, I think, first of all, don't chase the dollar. Um, that's never going to make you happy. Um, secondly, build a network, just go and meet more and more people. We used to go, we, we took the guy who started lastminute.com. We, we took him out for, for breakfast one morning. We just, I just basically kept sending him emails going, I want to take you breakfast, I want to take you for breakfast. And asked him like, how did you start? Whatever, we learned loads of stuff from him. So I would say, build your network, listen to other people. And then one of my sort of maxims is be, be rich, not right. Don't say I've created a brand new X for Y. And then spend three, four, six, eight, twelve months building it, whether it's tech or whether it's a service, or whatever. Just go out there and see if your why—the people you're building this for—see if they actually want want it and where they care about the problem. Validate your idea, and don't get rid of your ego because your ego is the thing that's going to ruin everything for you.
1: Why would why would the <laughs> ego ruin everything for you?
0: Because I think that. Ego stands in your way and, get, and and there are so many people I know who are obsessed with being right about something to the point where they will go bankrupt trying to be right. They will be in a job that they hate because they want to be right and never want to be wrong. And I think that this whole idea of making mistakes is so, so important that by trying to avoid being wrong, you're going to avoid about 90 percent of all the good things that are going to happen to you so don't let your ego stop you from trying new things even if the odds are that you're going to be wrong about it
1: do you think that you went bankrupt because you were trying to be right oh yeah
0: yeah yeah 100 percent, 100 i to give you the, to put it in context i told you i built a walk-in fridge Um, I rented an, I rented a, um, not an apartment, an old garage. I had phone lines put in, I had printers, I had all sorts of stuff put into this office before I sold a single thing. Whereas I could have started that business A day after the idea, by going by basically advertising, and when someone said, I want four cans of Stella, I go to the shop and buy four cans of Stella, even though actually that wouldn't have worked because of the licensing law, which I was actually getting around. But, but, you know, go and buy like a couple of cases of Stella, a couple of cases of Carlsberg, a few bottles of wine. I could have put probably 800 pounds into stock, another 500 pounds into advertising, and I could have validated that idea in about six weeks. And I would have known in six weeks, probably, there's not really much money in it which is why I went bankrupt because it wasn't very profitable. Whereas instead, I went and got this loan, 40 grand. I got an overdraft. I got this and I got a van and I got the other because I felt that's what you needed to start a business. You don't, to start a business, you just need a number of people to say, I will buy what you're selling and there's a check. And that's it. No business cards. You don't, and if you'll start thinking, oh, well, how do I, how do I register as a business in my, in my county? Oh, it's difficult. I've got to do paperwork. My advice, which is not legal advice, is to fuck it. <laughs> just try it. And if you start to get 20 or 30 people who want your stuff, okay, well, then you probably need to look into the actual, you know, the the, the bureaucracy of getting a business started. But and t- you don't have a business just because you've got a business card.
1: I think that's a, a good note to end it on. Al, thank you for your honesty and your candor. And I think my favourite thing about, about Al is, is his humility and just is his willingness and joy of just throwing himself into different things um you might think you know Al now, but there are at least five or six jobs he's had that you didn't even <laughs> mention there, that all have stories behind him. So fear not, if you meet Al one day, you can still sit down and have a couple of pints and hear a good story. Al, thank you so, so much.
0: Thank you, love. And it's kind of weird being interviewed by someone you know so well, but you asked some great questions and stuff I'd never really thought about. So uh, I've got, I'm interviewing you next. Mm. So um, I'm going to have to go and, uh, go and write out some questions and <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a tough one.
1: So as you said, this week we're bringing you two episodes. Um, so another bonus after this one, which will be with me. And um, Al gets into into my psychology, which will be interesting. Um, so yeah, so tune back in on Thursday. If you haven't already, please do consider subscribing. Um, so all of our episodes will come straight to you without you even having to pick up your phone. Um, and yeah, if people want to get in touch, Al, where will they find us?
0: Just go to truthlieswork.com. And there's a website there where there's you can just look in the bottom right and you can get in touch with there or just all the socials. Look for Truth Lies Work. You think? See you soon. See you soon. Bye bye.